Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Tomorrow, the papal visit to Canada begins. Pope Francis will arrive in Edmonton. So it's of real significance, real significance. But what is required for the Pope's mission to be considered a success? Calvin Helene is the son of a hereditary chief in British Columbia. He's a brilliant author, including Dances with Dependency. That was the first book of Calvin's that I read. He's written many more since, but it's an incredible book. He's a just a wonderful author, lawyer, entrepreneur, also named to the top 40 under 40, and uh, always glad to have Calvin on the program. Calvin, thank you very much for, for joining us. How are you? I'm doing just fine, Roy. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on in this world of ours, not only with the Pope's visit, but else, elsewhere as well. But let's uh, start with the Pope. So Pope Francis says he'll be on a penitential pilgrimage to engage reconciliation and healing of wounds left by the residential school system in Canada. And he'll address the church's role within the residential school system beginning in the 1860s and lasting until 1969. What do you think the Pope's message is going to have to contain? Will it Will it have to be different to his apology to an indigenous, indigenous delegation to the Vatican in April of this year? To be honest with you, Roy, I don't really care what he says. Um, I think that uh, that uh, he's the CEO of an institution that destroyed our our cultures, it destroyed destroyed our languages, destroyed our families, the abuse that. Uh, Indigenous kids uh, took at their schools, and um, you know the, they're they're probably, the, I think, maybe the only schools in the history of the planet where um, architects designed cemeteries into them because they were killing kids. And um, I have uh, uh, very little uh, hopes that anything will come out of this. Um, I know there's there are people who were abused in the school and and they might get some sense of re- reconciliation from it, but um, I wouldn't prostrate myself to any organization that literally had as its purpose to wipe out your identity, and um, I. I don't think that, uh, you know, and, and, uh, to talk about his, uh, his apology. Well, is it really an apology if after consulting a thousand lawyers and having, uh, some statement extracted from you, um, that, you know, is, is that in the spirit of a real apology? Um, I, I don't think, you know, there's a, a lot to that. And the other thing that I think needs to be addressed is uh, what's known as the doctrine of discovery. Doctrine of discovery was the uh, legal sleight of hand that the church used to take everybody's land. And basically it consisted of if uh, you 
were an explorer for a country that was under the um, you know Catholic Church at the time. You went off to somewhere and you planted a flag and went back and informed the sovereign and then came back with a handful of people to create a small settlement. Uh, they took your land. They, all, all of the Americas were taken that way. And um, so the, the um, uh, feelings that I have towards an institution like that are, are not very good. Um, I know he's, he's the figurehead of, of the church, but uh, in, in all of this, in this whole process, this uh, this religion, which is supposed to be moral, supposed to be um, uh, kind to people and forgiving and all of these things, they they have not practiced what they preached at all. They basically um, did everything they could to avoid having to be responsible for some of the things that their preachers had done and nuns had done to indigenous people over the last hundred or so years. Calvin, do you and, think, let me, let me just ask you this, if you don't mind. Do you think there's a considerable percentage of indigenous people in this country who feel just as you do, are looking at this, at this um, penitential pilgrimage by the Pope? And, and when I asked you the first question, what really stuck out to me was, when, when I went back to my notes and I saw the residential school system began in the 1860s and lasted until 1969, so over 100 years. And here we are in 2022, and finally the Pope is coming to Canada to apologize. And I felt, I had the same question you did. Who wrote this apology? How, you know, there would have been a lot of people in the room when they crafted this. Do you believe there's a significant percentage of First Nations people, Indigenous people, who feel as you do about this visit? I think it, it, there is a significant percentage of people that do feel this way because um, because they're informed about what happened. They understand the history. In like uh, the United States and all the countries in the Americas are relatively new uh, by the terms of the way Aboriginal people, mostly across uh, across the world look at things. We've been in places uh, for 10,000 years or more. They're now discovering that indigenous people have been in the Americas likely 30,000 years. And so we take a very long view of history. And and to have all of this stuff ha have occurred so recently, um, I, I think it helps to understand how indigenous people feel about this. Calvin, uh, you were just talking about the many, many centuries of indigenous culture and civilization in North and Central America. And uh, you and I have talked about this, the advanced and the well-functioning uh, civilizations which existed before Europeans arrived. Uh, when I've read your writings, uh, I've invariably thought that the teaching of indigenous history, as you've researched it, would be a significantly important contributor truth and reconciliation. There are many people who feel very strongly and very positively about the Pope arriving tomorrow. I don't want to take that away from them, but and I really want to hear what, and we've heard what you think, but I really think the teaching, properly teaching and appreciating 
indigenous civilizations would go a long way toward understanding and truth and reconciliation. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely um, a critical uh, aspect of, um, of trying to uh, recognize what existed before Europeans came here, came to the Americas, the the idea that uh, that the, the history that that is recorded came from a time uh, and from Europeans when their motivations uh, were uh, gold, uh, glory, and God, and gold was first. They didn't really, they weren't interested at all in the in the uh, huge number of indigenous cultures, mm-hmm. and so. When uh, when they came, unfortunately, they brought all these diseases, and it wiped out about 95% of the population. And uh, when you consider, you know, maybe point zero 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 three percent of the population died during COVID, um, it completely wiped out in these incredibly sophisticated indigenous societies uh, throughout the Americas. There's trading networks across the continents. Um, and so when the, when the settlers came, they judged people by, uh, what was left of the societies and there wasn't a lot left. Um, they were, you know, you can, you can imagine if, if, uh, 95% of the population of North America suddenly, um, disappeared, you would, you wouldn't have uh, much of a functioning entity. No, you wouldn't. And no, so, wouldn't. and so people don't really have a, uh, a uh, good idea of um, of what these societies were like, or an accurate idea. And there was a, a study uh, done recently at the London School, London College, or whatever, in, uh, out of uh, Great Britain. And uh, there was a, uh, uh, a time between 1600 and 1800 called the Little Ice Age, and the, this study. Uh, concluded that the reason there was a little ice age is because there were so many people in the Americas that had land land under cultivation that when the population uh, died from disease, it it resulted in a regrowth of natural vegetation, which pulled so much CO2 uh, out of the atmosphere that it created the uh, an actual oh, little ice age. I hadn't heard that. And Let so, me. I've got about three minutes, Calvin. If I can just come back for a minute to the to the visit by the Pope, the penitential pilgrimage. Um, how do you think? What do you think the significance of of this visit it is to the youngest or the younger generations of First Nations? I I don't uh, I don't really know. I don't think. Well, I, it may have a lot of significance to them because. Um, what happened was the dysfunction that happened from 1860 on was in, is internalized through the generations. So these young people uh, have are carrying a lot of the the internal dysfunction that was caused by the church, and and I think if if the church w- actually wanted to do something, they should address. Uh, dealing with all of these issues, not just for Indigenous people, but for all of the other uh, non-Indigenous kids across the globe who had their lives uh, shattered by the abuse of of uh, preachers and nuns. 
There's a big, there's a big issue there. Does Trudeau have a, does the prime minister have a role to play during the Pope's visit in your view? Uh, I don't think, uh, well, I, I know what his role's going to be. It's, it's to have selfies with him, like he does everywhere else. Um, but I, I don't think it would make any difference whatsoever. Okay. What must the papal visit, I, I, I probably shouldn't be asking you this because you've told me how, how you feel about it, but let me ask you anyway. What, what must the papal visit avoid? Where must the Pope not speak to, if anything? What do you think? Um, well, uh, what let let me uh, turn that on its end. I think what he should speak to is to, if you look at the assets of the Catholic Church, they'd be the biggest corporation in the world. And what they've been seeking to do is to avoid uh, uh, paying any kind of compensation to any of the people. And again, I'm including non-Indigenous people in this. They've fought for for all of their Christian, supposed Christian sentiments. They've fought a just outcome for all of these people that have been harmfully impacted by things. They should uh, sell some of their assets and take care of, of uh, good Christian business by dealing with the people that they've really, really seriously harmed. One more question for you. When it comes to the issue of First Nations and reconciliation, we have about a minute here. What is the what is the issue that that most has to be addressed by governments, by um, by all parties? What's the what's the issue that has to dominate? I, if, in my opinion, what happened was the the government uh, cleared indigenous people off their traditional lands. They were completely self reliant. They were able, and they put them on reserves uh, in order to make them dependent because they were easy to control. And we're in a situation now where Indigenous people um, are wanting to uh, be involved in the economy, and uh, their access to our, our traditional resources is limited. There has to be uh, economic recon- reconciliation so people... Um, can uh, can uh, be able to have jobs and opportunities yeah. to validate their yeah. sense of self worth. You know, it comes back to uh, to, to dignity and, e- and economy and the ability to, to do things for yourself and, and improve your own life at your on your terms makes a massive difference. I mean, I'm going to say your terms. I mean that in the in the large uh, context. The agreement that Ukraine signed with the United Nations, uh, with Turkey's assistance, that millions of tons of, uh, of grain, of uh, Ukrainian grain, should be released to a hungry world. The Russians have signed a similar but separate agreement with the uh, United Nations, also involving Russian fertilizer. And what did the Russians do? What did Adolf Putin do? A few hours later, he fired missiles into Odessa, which is the Black Sea port from which most of the, or much of the Ukrainian grain would be leaving by ship. So there's Putin for you. Uh, yeah, I, I tweeted the other day that there's a lot of questions here about just how necessary 
And the ambassador was talking about the turbines being, gas turbines being released by Justin Trudeau's government. Finally has a haircut that matches his personality. Uh, Though the gas turbines were going to be released or had been released from Montreal and uh, to Germany and then to uh, to Putin. And so I, later I find out, and I guess can tell me if I'm right or wrong, those turbines weren't really necessary for Nord Stream 1 to begin operating again, which it did on Tuesday of this past week. The argument was that they needed it for Nord Stream 1. Then I heard they didn't really need it for Nord Stream 1. So, you know, I, I said if, if the Russians don't um, resume the flow of natural gas, then Mr. Trudeau will send a stern letter to Adolf Putin and demand the turbines be returned to Montreal. And Mr. Putin would, of course, immediately agree. Okay, enough of this. Think about this for a second. If I had said to you five years ago that five years from now we're going to be in a world where there is great concern about natural gas and oil supply for Europe, for the necessities of Europe, like heating your home, heating your stores, cooling your home, um, getting from point A to point B, that there was going to be massive concern about whether or not that was going to be possible. There would be massive concern that on a sophisticated first world continent, there would not be enough natural gas to keep the lights on. Washington Post story begins this way. Nuremberg has stopped illuminating its historic buildings. Hamburg landlords are rationing hot water. And Berlin may turn off non-essential traffic lights at night. Folks, this is July 2022. Germany may be turning off non-essential traffic lights in its capital city at night to save gas supplies. Um, so just a little bit of information for you here. Nord Stream 1 did begin pumping natural gas from Russia to Germany on Tuesday, rest of the, most of the rest of the continent, I think, as well. The European Commission has urged countries to cut back gas use in case Russia switches off Europe's supply. Retail electricity prices for EU households up 44% in May of 22 over May of 21. Netherlands went up 167%, Italy up 118%. Europe doesn't have enough gas reserves as renewables have not been able to address the need. And that's the way it is. Germany has signed uh, new natural gas import deals, by the way, with the United States and Qatar, and is turning back uh, on the coal-fired plants. One of Western Europe's largest gas storage facilities was a few weeks ago less than 1% full. It's very, very concerning. And then I wonder whether Europe's energy crisis could, in fact, in any way, make its way to this side of the Atlantic Ocean. The United States is already pleading with the Saudis to increase their oil flow. And we know that in this country, we don't have export capability except sending oil to the United States. We, we can't send export. We can't export our natural gas anymore because well, we don't have the infrastructure. And uh, so could problems arise here? Thierry Bro is a professor at Sciences Po in Paris, leading expert on markets, geopolitics of oil and gas, and energy security. 
Professor Poe is an oil and gas expert of the French Energy Ministry, was in charge of security and supply, and is a regular contributor to Natural Gas World's website. Thierry, thank you very much for, for joining me on the program. Um, how much trouble is Europe in? Good, good afternoon, Roy. Yes, we are, we are in deep uh, trouble. But again, as you stated, I mean, remember, 18 months ago, the International Energy Agency, which is an OECD organization where Canada and Europe are, uh, published a report stating that uh, it was not needed to invest in oil and gas. And this is why we are creating this big crisis. I think, again, as I stated to you, we are partially or fully responsible for this crisis. And, and, and just to give you an idea, I mean, we, we pride ourselves in this part of the world to be green. That's not the story any longer. But again, if you look at the data for 2021, so before this war, 2021 versus 2020, the fuel that we burn most in terms of growth versus 20. 2021 versus 20 was coal. So uh, Europe is priding itself of being green and efficient, etc. But uh, even prior to the war, we were burning more coal than the year before. And we are now going to face a huge crisis. Uh, as you rightly stated, we have to, to reduce our gas demand by 15%. This is going to be tremendously dif difficult. And I'm not so sure all member states will agree. And in the meantime, Putin, as you rightly said, has full power. He can decide what kind of recession we will face. If he turns off the pipe, Germany, full industry, will have to close down. Massive recession. And then he can decide, I increase it a bit or I decrease it, i.e. the recession uh, percentage is going to be decided by Vladimir Putin in Moscow. So they handed Putin the ball and said, now you make the rules. They just, yes. <laughs> it's insane. Unfortunately. But this is 15 years of Angela Merkel for you. Uh, for the last 15 years, I mean, we had a leader in Germany that was telling us, you can close nuclear, we are going to uh, use less energy. That's not the case. We are using more energy. And this is why we are facing the wall right now. Because of 15 years of Merkel, we have collectively to reduce our demand our gas demand by 15%. And this has nothing to do with greening the system. And this is where I'm, I'm, I'm a bit uh, upset because we are going to emit much, much more uh, CO2 because we are going to burn more coal. Yeah, and they're doing that now. Germany has, has fired up the coal plants, yes? Yes, even before, even in 2021, as I stated, okay. in 2021, yeah. Germany, but also France, yeah. have uh, increased the coal fire power plant. And the coal is going to be the uh, our, our life-saving uh, fuel, which is completely insane in a world where we're supposed to be green. Yeah, it's insane to fire up the coal plants and refuse to fire up your nuclear plants. To me, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Yes, and, and, and this is why, again, I mean, people are looking at Germany and are not very impressed by the energy policy that has been implemented there in the last 15 years. But also we can look at uh, Germany and say that we weren't impressed by the way they pressured Canada to release those turbines, because as you rightly stated, there is absolutely no link between the turbines and the flow in Nord Stream 1. The flow in Nord Stream 1 is a political decision by Vladimir Putin from the Kremlin. Okay, so the whole position that was put forward that Germany needs the turbines to hand over to Putin in order for Germany not to be cut off from the natural gas that it requires from Nord Stream 1, that was just bogus. 
Yes. It just, just wasn't true. Yes. I mean, you, as I told you on your program last time, I mean, Germany could have asked more gas flow via Ukraine. Germany, as you rightly said, should have decided to postpone the nuclear closure. I mean, there are ways. I mean, going to Canada to pressure uh, another democratic state to release something for Vladimir Putin is just showing that we are not united. And this is where Vladimir Putin plays. And again, this is what he's going to enjoy next week in Europe, because as you rightly said, uh, we have to put a plan where we are going to reduce collectively by 15% our gas demand, which is going to be tremendously difficult. And if we don't agree the 27, then this will show to Vladimir Putin that he has even more power than what he thinks. And again, he will have the power to decide the recession level in Germany. Yeah, It wouldn't be a stretch, would it, to uh, suggest that Putin, when it gets cold in Europe, says to someone at Gazprom, Turn it off. I wouldn't say say, but order. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and this is why I've told you that I never thought he was going to do this right now in plain, in plain summer. But he yeah. has the weaponization of gas. And the weaponization of gas is much more powerful in plain winter than in uh, plain summer. And this is why, by the way, the Commission is rightly asking all of us to try to save gas now to have a safe winter. Because if we don't save it now, we are going to face very, very difficult consequences uh, during winter. You told us on this program, Terry, about a month ago, that you had a concern then that there would be blackouts in Europe this winter. You still have that, obviously. Absolutely. And it turns out that I wasn't too, so, so far from reality. As you rightly stated, I mean, they are turning already lights out today uh, in, in big uh, cities to try to avoid. I mean, in, in swimming pools, there are stopping heating. They, they don't have, I think, uh, hot water in the showers in, uh, in, uh, in public uh, swimming pool in, in Germany any longer. This is the kind of, of life we are going to, to live, we are going to discover. And I think this will be, I think what we can say from this is Vladimir Putin wake us up because we were in a world where we believed everybody was going to be uh, clean, everybody was going to be friendly, and everybody at the end of the day will be a net zero in 2050. We that know is this awesome. is not... It was going to be one big happy windmill. Um, Thierry, just before we talk about some of the other issues in Europe, do you have any sense that what is happening in Europe now could drift over and become a fact of life in North America for Canada and the United States? Well, I think when you're looking at the oil, remember the oil is a fungible market, uh, i.e. where the oil will go where the price is the highest. And because we have very little spare capacity right now, and we are consuming 100 million barrels per day of oil, and we haven't done the investment before, I fear that this crisis is going to be way longer than the usual one. Because in the old days, when you had extreme high prices, uh, OPEC or uh, Wall Street were investing in new fields. But as you've seen, Wall Street is quite, quite hesitant. And OPEC has stated to Joe Biden, well, sorry, but you told us that oil was passé, and so therefore we are not going to overinvest. So I think the boom and bust cycle that we've seen in the oil is going to be a way longer time this time, unfortunately, for consumers. Okay. So we're not 100% safe here because we choose not to be. We could be. In fact, we could be easily providing Europe, European nations, France, Germany, where the natural gas you require, but we don't have the export capability, and that was largely 
due to the fact that the current government of Canada decided that, well, they made their decisions on on energy issues. Now, what is what's the reality for countries like France, your country, Italy, the UK, and is there? I don't want to take this any further than it needs to be taken, but is there the chance that centuries-old um, anger between European countries could come to the surface if somebody starts hoarding supplies? Well, uh, my country has, in fact, two crises to manage. We have this gas crisis, but we also have the nuclear crisis because, unfortunately, half of our nukes are offline because they are they have they are facing some corrosion problems. So, which means we we can't do this fuel switching any longer in France, and which means that all Europe will suffer from the fact that France doesn't produce as much as nuke as uh, in the old days. And and what you what, what the Commission is trying to find is to implement this solidarity mechanism. The fact that we all try to solve this crisis. And again, 15% is massive. I mean, we haven't seen a 15% drop in energy demand and in gas demand in this in this case, even, even during COVID. I mean, we, I mean, COVID was really, really special. And so uh, this is going to be very, very painful, be it for France, be it for Italy. And interesting enough, the European Commission wants everybody to do this. And as I told you earlier, remember, We've been lectured for 15 years by Chancellor Angela Merkel that we should go greener, that we should have closed our nuclear, that wind and solar was going to be the solution. And so there are some countries, and in particular the country in the south, that suffer huge recession in after the financial crisis and didn't get any help from Germany that may not vote for this. And interesting enough, you need a qualified vote for this. So if you have six big countries or smaller countries that vote against this, then this means this solidarity mechanism isn't going to be implemented, which means Vladimir Putin can have a laugh. A Wall Street Journal op-ed, the headline is, the lead is how the climate elite spreads misery, how the climate elite spread misery. And it's by Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Think Tank and visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. His latest book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Professor Lomborg was named by Time as one of the world's 100 most influential people. It's good to have him back on the program. You do cause a lot of problems for yourself. You do realize that, don't you? <laughs> uh, well, if speaking the truth is uh, causing problems, then I guess it's important to do so. It is important to do this. And, uh, you know, just in the last few weeks, and you've always, you've never said that AGW is, is non-existent. You've always agreed with anthropogenic global warming, human-induced climate change, or global yes. warming. But you've said there's a different, there are different ways to approach it, and the way that it's being done by politicians and by bureaucrats at this particular time is what you disagree with. Dr. Lomborg, the words climate emergency are repeated over and over by national politicians in many parts of the world. They make it sound, to me anyway, as though there's a switch to be flipped, which will perform the function of ending the emergency, much like calling 911 and seeing the police or fire services arrive, and it's over. But when you hear politician, when you hear politicians say climate emergency, with the backdrop of videos of wildfires, what do you hear? 
Well, I actually hear two things. So one is absolutely what you're saying. Uh, they're saying uh, your kids and your family and everything you love is in danger, but vote for us and we'll fix it. Uh, and of course, that's entirely wrong, uh, because even if most politicians do all of the stuff that they've promised, it will only fix a smaller part of climate change. But I think the second more important part of this equation is that they are telling you in the first place, this is a climate emergency, or as Biden and many others say, it's an existential crisis. This could literally wipe off humanity from the face of the earth. Remember, there's a new OECD study that just came out a couple of weeks ago that shows that 60% of all people in the OECD now believes that climate change is likely to lead to the extinction of the human race. So obviously, this is no longer, oh, it's a problem. It's the end of the world. And of course, if it's the end of the world, you're willing to let politicians do anything, and it will have to cost as much as it needs to do. That's, of course, a wonderful place to be, but it's wrong. That's not what the UN Climate Panel is telling us. And also, politicians don't actually have a great way to fix it right now. Yeah, so when they say, and this is what you write in your op-ed, they, these are the uh, um, bureaucrats and politicians, they point to the current heat waves killing thousands across Europe as the latest reason to change our societies and economies radically by switching to renewables. Such arguments are misleading. What is the most fundamental thing that needs to be done? You've talked about this for many years. I remember right after, actually before, and after COP two in 2015 in Paris, you spoke about what needs to be done. Would you please remind us, and if there are any changes to your position since 2015, tell us that, please. What has to be done? Yes. So, so Roy, as you just pointed out, there is no easy switch. If you want to go down the route of most politicians, so Trudeau and everybody else in, in most rich countries that are basically saying, let's go net zero by lots and lots of uh, renewables, McKinsey estimate this will cost more than five trillion U.S. dollars every year for the next 30 years. That is about a trillion dollars for the European Union. It's more than a trillion dollars for America every year. This is a huge amount of money, much, much more than anyone is willing to spend. And this is money that will do fairly little because, remember, you might get rich Canadians and others uh, to do this. But the Chinese and the Indians and the Africans, the ones that will emit uh, about two-thirds to three-quarters of all emissions in the 21st century, are not uh, along because they, quite frankly, want to get their populations out of poverty and get them food and stuff. So we're trying to do something that not only will lead to rebellion from our, uh, from our voters, but it's also not going to be followed by those that matter most. What we need to do is instead of trying to do dumb stuff that costs a lot and doesn't fix the problem, we should be investing in green energy research and development. That is innovation to get better green technology. That could be fusion or fission, you know, nuclear power. It could be solar with lots and lots of batteries. It could be lots of other things. But the point is we need to innovate these technologies so that they become so cheap that we can all afford them, and especially that China, India, and Africa will want to buy these. And we're not anywhere close to that right now, and we need to. This will be much cheaper than what we're doing right now, 
and it'll actually fix the problem. So, you know, again, let's get our cool hat on. Instead of being scared witless, let's do smart stuff to fix yeah. climate change. Yeah, one of your books is Cool It. Um, I, I think what they have to also do is remember to connect with people. It's It's fine to have a message. It's fine to have something you believe in and you really want to push it. But remember to connect with people. And you write, moreover, politicians' singular focus on climate change ignores that people are much more worried about rampant inflation, especially rising food and energy prices, and climate policies are making those problems worse. You don't, uh, you know, I keep asking this question, but I have to ask it again. You don't disagree that AGW is fact. You disagree with the approach that's taken by politicians around the world. Spend, 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 spend money. And, uh, you know, we talked about what they're doing. Why is nobody listening yeah. to what you're suggesting? Why isn't there, why doesn't somebody say, hey, Lomborg's got an idea here? Well, if you get to spend a lot of money, uh, you obviously also get a lot of power. So in, oh, of any, in many ways, you could say that politi uh, politicians is about making sure that you allow them to spend a lot of your money. Uh, and if I come up with a really cheap plan to fix climate change, that means they can't be spending trillions, but just, you know, tens of billions. Uh, I understand why most people wouldn't want to do that. But, you know, just to give you a sense, uh, you just mentioned before uh, how everybody was talking about these heat waves. And, and look, there are, were real heat waves and heat waves are dangerous and you should be careful about them and you should drink a lot of water. You should have air conditioning, all that stuff. But we need to get a sense of proportion. First of all, if you think about heat waves and more heat deaths, that's absolutely true. As temperatures go up, we'll have more heat waves will probably see more people die from heat. But it also means fewer cold waves. And remember, almost everywhere on the planet, many more people die from cold than heat. So it's actually globally, it's estimated about half a million people die from heat. But four and a half million, so nine times more, four and a half million people die each year from cold. So what happens when temperatures go up is that you see, uh, for, for the last 20 years, you've seen about uh, 116,000 extra heat deaths. But because temperatures have gone up and cold waves have gone down, you see 283,000 fewer cold deaths every year by now. So we're actually seeing fewer people dying, not more people. That's one part of it. But the other one is, what are the, what's their solution? They say, oh my God, there are all these heat waves. We've got to cut carbon emissions. We've got to make energy much more expensive. That, of course, means that most people can't afford to keep cool in summer. They can't afford to run their air conditioner as much. And of course, neither can they afford to keep their heater going in winter. So it's actually very likely, we know this from the US, for instance, when shale gas made energy much cheaper, it meant that a lot more people in the US could keep their homes hot or warm in the winter. And that saved 11,000 people from dying every year. And obviously, the reverse is true too, as well. If you then make energy more expensive, you kill another 11,000 people. So that's how you spread this misery by, by spending vast amounts of money badly. You end up with really poor solutions. You don't actually fix the heat wave problems, but you do make it worse both for heat and for cold for most people. Yeah, scary situation in Europe. We'll be talking about that in the next hour. The European Commission 
is urging countries to cut back gas use in case Russia switches off the supply. Retail electricity prices for the EU households up 44% May of 22 versus May of 21. Netherlands up 167%. Netherlands also, Dr. Lomborg, as you well know and wrote about in uh, How climate, the Climate Elite Spread Misery, is the site of massive uh, farmer protests. We'll be speaking with a Netherlands member of parliament tomorrow about this. And it's pushback to, um, as you write, the environmental grandstanding, and that is cutting back on fertilizers and livestock. And farmers are saying, well, we won't be able to produce as much food, plus you'll put our farms out of business. Yeah. I mean, it fundamentally, it comes back to this idea of saying, you cannot just say, oh, I want to get rid of global warming without recognizing that there are many other things we want at the same time. If cutting back on carbon emissions means that you're going to end up making much more misery every, everywhere else, you'll have more people die from heat, you'll have more people die from cold, and all these other things, that's not necessarily a good thing. You need to make an, uh, you know, a, a balanced approach and actually prioritize these things. It's exactly the same thing in Holland. As, as you just mentioned, uh, uh, Parliament has said, we want to reduce uh, nitrogen, uh, uh, essentially depreciation or uh, pollution, you could call it, uh, to safeguard special bio uh, spheres. And that's, that's a nice thing. I think most of us would want that. But if it means that you're also going to put 40,000 farmers out of, out of commission, you're actually going to make uh, less food for a very hungry world, Maybe that's not the right priority. Again, this is something that we should be discussing honestly, and that's something that we can have a conversation about, but it's not what we're having a conversation about right now because all the politicians are simply telling us it's an emergency, so you've got to let us do everything we want. Now, I, again, I get why they would like that, but we shouldn't let them. Let me just read a few lines from your op-ed. Policymakers need to recognize that they simply can't eliminate fossil fuels with current technologies. The world gets almost 80% of its energy from fossil fuels, and even if all the current climate policies were fully implemented, by mid-century, fossil fuels would still provide more than half of all the energy used worldwide, according to the International Energy Agency. You also write... Policymakers should focus on funding research to develop clean energy sources that are actually affordable and reliable. Some of these technologies are already in development. Greater funding could bring them to fruition more quickly and do a lot more to help limit emissions than the policies activists now hawk. Well, I don't want to be a cynic, but I'd say good luck with that. I mean, it makes sense to me. I'm reading your edit. I read the op-ed and I thought I have to talk to Dr. Lomborg about this. It makes absolute sense, but they're on a mission. And and look, my, my approach to the world is always, this is not about getting everything right. That would be so unlikely, as you just pointed out. But getting it a little less wrong would be really good, right? So if we can move it a little bit towards politicians don't waste quite as much of our money on poor and ineffective policies and a little more on the smart ones, maybe we'll actually leave this world slightly better. Yes, I would love everyone to be irrational, but they're not. But it would be cool to be slightly less dumb. And that, I think, is, a, is an ambition that we can actually achieve. I want to go back to, in the minute we have left, something you've said many times in our conversations, and that is millions more people would be lifted out of poverty and they would have enough food to eat if we approach this differently. Yeah, fundamentally, it's about getting our priorities right 
And one of the most important things is lift people out of poverty. Then, of course, they can fix a lot of the problems themselves. They'll also worry more about global warming. Hockey Canada and its so-called National Equity Fund to settle sexual assault claims, as well as, as, well as other uninsured liabilities like harassment, apparently is history. Now Hockey Canada says the fund will no longer be used for such purpose. CEO Scott Smith and his predecessor, Tom Rennie, will be back before the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage in Parliament this coming week. In a few minutes, we'll talk to Lisa Hefner, Hamilton Mountain Liberal Member of Parliament and a member of that committee. But it's going to be Tuesday, I think, this coming Tuesday, when uh, Mr. Rennie and uh, uh, Scott Smith will be before the, uh, the inquiry. And this, of course, is about players alleged to have been engaged in the gang sexual assault of a young woman in London, Ontario, in 2018. And now the question is, was uh, was this properly, uh, perhaps not properly investigated? London police have ordered an internal review of their investigation into the case. And there's now growing concern about an alleged group sex assault on an unresponsive woman by members of the 2003 Canadian junior national hockey team in Halifax. Three of the players who were on that team have already said we had nothing to do with anything like that. Apparently there's a video out. That was the, the word that uh, a TSN reporter had uh, been told about a video. So what happens now? What's most likely going forward from a legal and criminal perspective. Ari Goldkind is a criminal lawyer in Toronto and also a, a media pundit. Uh, Ari, this is one of these cases the entire country is paying very close attention to, and rightly so. So the first question out of the gate, and this is one people are asking, when it comes to this kind of situation, charges not laid or, or situations investigated by police in 2018, they didn't lay any charges, does that mean uh, to technically it's over? Is there some sort of statute of limitations that could be involved? No, that's an easy question, Roy. Good afternoon to you. There is no statute of limitations on any investigation or if new information comes to light. And that's both for civil claims of sexual abuse and also for criminal charges of sexual assault, so long as they proceed by what's called indictment, which in our country is similar to a felony. So the short answer to your question is no. Whether it be 2003 or 2018, charges could come forward. Whether they should or will is a completely different question. Okay, let me ask you what your response is as a criminal lawyer. You've been in this business for a long time. Uh, what is your? What are the questions that you have? What What's got your antenna up, other than the, the nucleus of the case? Well, what has my antenna up, Roy, is just how nails on a blackboard Trudeau's comments are that you played there. Once again, he's speaking about things he knows nothing about. He seems to be clueless as to how the criminal justice system should or should not work or civil justice. Why? The scandal of this, Roy, is just what a non-scandal it is. And let's separate out for a moment 2003, the video that you're talking about, which if the reporting of uh, a very intrepid uh, TSN reporter is accurate, really does reflect the sexual assault. If a woman is unconscious or out of it on a pool table while six men are taking their turns having sex with her, that's not having sex. That's sexually assaulting her. But let's now go to 2018 because the 2003 one, there is no reporting that I've seen, Roy, 
that Hockey Canada knew about that up until the other day. So if they didn't know about it, there's no scandal there. Let's go to 2018. In 2018, the young woman goes to the police. What most of your listeners don't know, Roy, is what I'm about to tell them. And I emphasize, they don't know this. That slush fund that you talked about, or the reserve fund, is 2% of that fund is reserved for these kinds of claims. Almost every sports league has them. Most major corporations have them. Where does the criminal law fit into this? She goes to the police, and in a dedicated unit of the London police force, there's called the Sexual Assault and Child Abuse Team. Four out of five complainants or alleged victims, when they go to the police, they could say Roy Green or Roy Green's producers sexually assaulted me. And whether it's bunk or whether it's a good charge or there's no evidence or any evidence, Roy Green's getting charged. As of 2017, Roy, and you may remember this, there was an article in the Globe and Mail called Unfounded. This is post-Gomeshi, where that statistic came out, and it was only one in five, one in five, where the cases were not brought and charges weren't laid. So the point I'm making to you, Roy, is when the young woman, and again, one of the best law firms in Canada in 2018 and onward investigates this, and the police say there are no charges to be had. That is extraordinarily rare. Almost always the men or males would be charged. London police would be chomping at the bit to charge uh, back in 2018, but they felt it could not go ahead. The scandal here is this idea that there are eight young men out there that are rapists or sexual assaulters when there is no evidence to suggest that. And Hockey Canada, in my view, Roy, demonstrated their lack of spine by writing a check to this young woman. Why? Because they didn't want the PR nightmare that they're facing now, so they thought by writing a check, it would all go away. Um, why do you believe, then, that the chief of police in London wants it looked at again? Yes, that's the best question here. Uh, chief William in London is facing a tremendous amount of pressure. I wouldn't even be surprised, Roy, even if there's no real new evidence, nothing that they didn't know or had reason to know back then, that he doesn't lay a charge because police forces are political creatures. They know that the public will look to them and say, well, why didn't you charge? We don't even know what the woman's position is on this, Roy. There is so much reporting out there that begs questions that does not provide answers the chief of police i believe and i would debate this till the cows come home until the evidence comes out to the contrary remember different than 2003 the chief of police in his very cleverly worded statement you have to look at it again roy to see just how clever uh it was he talks about how thoroughly this was investigated but he says there may be some other avenues for us to explore and we're going to do that in our own time. If that isn't a PR statement or a political statement to take some heat off what was probably a very proper, reasonable, and rational decision not to charge eight men, then that to me is what's going on here, and I look forward to evidence coming out. If I'm wrong, I'll be the first to come out and say, hey, they have access to something July 23rd, 2022, that under no circumstances could their investigation have led them to in 2018. Other than that, Roy, this is pure PR. So we also heard that there was a text from the player yeah, yeah. 
to the young woman. Yep. Wondering, asking if she had gone to the police. Yep. So, Harry, how so, does that fit? So there's a text and there's videos. And just to bring your listeners into even more details, there's conversations that tell us that the woman did not want to go to police. This is the alleged uh, victim. When I use the word alleged strongly, I'm not prepared to call her a victim. I'm not prepared to call these men rapists. Where she's on video as well saying, I knew what I was doing. I was sober. There is some talk that she says I was intimidated. That's what I, there was some, that she says there was some pressure to do it. She did not want her mother calling the police. The mother was behind this. We haven't seen all the video. Perhaps there's more video. But at this point, Roy, the, the public is also being misled with this idea that a drunk person, because there's no dispute here, it seems like she was drinking, that a drunk person cannot consent to sexual activity. That's, again, very different, Roy, just to take people back to 2003, where you had somebody essentially unconscious or incapacitated on the pool table. So there's a lot going around here, Roy, that if you really follow the money and organizations that really get, get a lot of funding and dollars off this kind of scandal, you can never, in my business, Roy, or in any other business, you can never choose to stop following the money. And that is much of the reason we're having this discussion today, including why Tim Hortons left. The government said we're going to stop funding. You cannot take the politics out of this. And I'm not prepared to say London police uh, did a bad job in 2018. Okay, so I have less than a minute here. Yes, sir. So 2003, 2018, a little voice in the back of my head says, what if there were other years in that same, within that time span when the same sort of thing happened. I'm not saying it did, but there's a little voice in the back of my head saying, what if? Well, I don't have the answer to that. But In less than a minute, there's also comfort here that there are 15 years between these incidents, the Wait. reserve fund. Well, those two incidents, but what if there Correct. were other incidents within that time frame? To, I'm, I'm going to come to that in the 30 seconds I have left. Those numbers tell us something. I only work off evidence. And the good news is, if this sends a message to other young men on junior teams, don't be going to hotel rooms and having sex with six of your buddies with a woman who's inebriated because it's either going to be viewed as sexual assault or it's not going to do anything to help you. If it makes these young men think twice, whether it be 2015, 2018, or 2022, anything like this will have a chilling effect, hopefully, on young men with alcohol, and you've, you've had me on, Roy, you know my views of alcohol. Yeah. I think it's the scourge of Harry, society. I, I have to take Perhaps a break here. It makes men better. Well, back to this issue of um, Hockey Canada. And at least two of the junior hockey teams, 2003 Halifax, 2018, in uh, in London. And I should have mentioned this to Ari Goldkinder. We're running a little short on time. It seems from testimony that was uh, that was given... I will ask my guest about this to the uh, Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage in Parliament that there's actually more than one case per year that seems to be settled by Hockey Canada. Lisa Hepfner is Hamilton Mountain Liberal Member of Parliament. She is also a, a member of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage. Ms. Hepfner, thank you very much for joining us. Is, is that correct? Is the testimony or the evidence point to more than one case per year? Hi, Roy. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's what we heard uh, at committee from Hockey Canada executives when we pushed them on uh, how 
widespread this problem is, how often they're dealing with uh, these sorts of claims, and we were told one or two a year. But we weren't given any details. Um, We were told that they weren't prepared to answer questions about um, anything more than the one incident that they had appeared on. So um, that left our committee feeling that Hockey Canada had been less than transparent with us. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as you look to Tuesday, when you have the past current and past CEOs before the committee, where's the focus going to be? Where do you feel you need to take the focus after the first meeting and what, what we've all been able to find out in this country? Well, I would think, first of all, I want to give a shout-out to the journalists who have really been doing some stellar work uncovering new things every day that we didn't know when we had that uh, original committee meeting. Um, It's really thanks to those investigative journalists that we found out so much. And to me, the most egregious thing that we learned is that, or, I mean, and we haven't, you know, had this confirmed by Hockey Canada yet, but that there was a fund maintained by Hockey Canada that every parent who paid into fees, contributed to, and this fund could have been used to solve sexual assault uh, allegations without having any sort of investigation by an insurance company or anybody else so that, you know, the players could just get off scot-free. And to me, that was the most egregious thing because if an organization is saying they have zero tolerance for sexual violence and then they have a, a fund that can just sweep it under the rug. I mean, those are two directly opposite things. So to me, that's the most egregious thing. That's the thing I think will be the focus, uh, I mean, from my perspective, of uh, the committee when Hockey Canada is there, I believe, on on Wednesday. Uh, We're going to have the Minister for Sport on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I expect we'll hear a lot of questions about how often that fund was used and, uh, and more about... Um, how often these sorts of allegations came to Hockey Canada. Yeah. So um, we know London police investigated. They're going to have another look at it now. But it, it is it is disturbing. This is one that sticks with me, and you just mentioned it. If Hockey Canada has this fund and they reach into the fund to provide an out-of-court settlement without really pursuing an investigation, an investigation of the complaint and an investigation against their players, that does not sit well. That that's that's just to me is is really objectionable. There's the, the there are questions that need answering here. It makes me really angry, Roy. It makes me say that the, it makes me feel that they're condoning the behavior. They're uh, they're condoning that that culture that you know glorifies sexual violence. I've just been increasingly furious watching these stories come out day after day. Do you have any sense, because we had 2003 and 2018, so roughly 15 years between the two, um, do you have any sense that there might have been uh, additional experiences, events, moments like this that happened in the ensuing years? I'm, I'm not trying to create a bigger problem than the one that already exists, but is there anything that's been asked, any questions that have been raised about that among the members of Parliament on the committee? Well, certainly we asked the last time they were here. I personally asked how widespread is the problem, particularly since we know so many survivors of sexual violence don't come forward. They don't make any reports of police. So if Hockey Canada is getting on 
their admission a couple of cases a year. How often is it actually happening? Um, yeah, oh, I, I'm sure they will get many questions like that as well. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.